My name is Abby Hartman Kukas. I'm on the First Impressions team. You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We are working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. So uh, in the fall of 2020, the Harvard Business Review published an article. Uh, It was about adaptive leadership, and it was based on these conversations that had been had um, earlier in the year at Stanford University about the nature of change in the world. The authors wrote this, quote, Conditions for accelerating change have been building for years. Advancements in uh, a number of fields that they list have created a new reality where change is perpetual. It occurs all the time in an ongoing way. It's pervasive, unfolding in multiple areas of life at once, and it is exponential. It is accelerating at an increasingly rapid rate, end quote. Now, I can't imagine anybody disagreeing with that that change has become a perpetual, pervasive, and exponentially growing part of the culture that we're a part of. We live in a revolutionary time in human history. My guess is that it is a time of greater change than perhaps any time since the Industrial Revolution in the late 18th century or perhaps even from the invention of the printing press in the mid-15th century. The air that we breathe is adapt, respond, innovate, learn, grow, change. This is the water that we swim in every day. And one of our challenges can sometimes be that we bring that cultural norm of pervasive exponential change into our spiritual experiences. And we assume that since everything else around us is changing at an increasing rate, that surely God must be changing too. And our default, if we're not careful, is to interpret God through the lens of our shared cultural experience rather than interpreting our cultural experience through the lens of God. 3,500 years ago, the challenge for the second generation of Israelites who were encamped on the plains of Moab just outside the promised land was the same. They were going to be tempted to interpret God through the lens of their shared cultural experience. God had made a covenant with their ancestor Abraham. He had reaffirmed that covenant through Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And finally, after 400 years, God had redeemed his people out of their slavery in Egypt He had given them new standards and regulations by which they were supposed to live. He had brought them right to the threshold of going into the very land that he had promised them. But the people did not trust God. And so that entire first generation got sentenced to die wandering around the wilderness. It took 40 years. And as we left off last week in the story, the second generation now, those 40 years having passed, was once again gathered on the edge of the promised land. And I think 
that they must have been tempted to think about their situation in the way that we do a lot of times. I think surely, and this is just Chip kind of thinking about what it must have been like to be them, surely they must have looked back over those 40 years and thought, well, that didn't work. Our parents, like so many parents, right? I mean, not us, we're good parents, but our parents and you know other people's parents jacked up the whole world. And I wonder what God's plan B is going to be for us. Because that way of doing things hasn't worked. And I think that we do the same thing. And we think, well, you know, the church is just full of hypocrites. Surely we can find an alternative to organized religion. And this whole church thing just isn't working out. You know, the, the, uh, the socially acceptable sexual norms have really changed over the years. And, and I bet God's view on that has changed as well. You know, the world isn't nearly as small as it used to be. We, we know more about other cultures and other people and other nations. And I'm sure that, that God now has come to a place where he understands that there's multiple ways to get to him. This notion that any one religion would have an exclusive truth came, claim is just kind of archaic. See, the old way of doing things, that, that hasn't really worked out so well. The world is changing really fast. Surely... The way that God had hoped things might work hasn't worked. I wonder what God's plan is now. Here's the biblical truth that I want you to take away from the book of Deuteronomy. It's in your notes if you're somebody who, like me, has one of these little notebooks that you're keeping for the year. It's this biblical truth that God does not change. God does not change. The entire book of Deuteronomy is basically Moses saying to Israel, God does not change. It is literally a recap of the previous three books in the Bible. It is given by Moses to Israel in a series of, depending on your interpretation, either three sermons or three sermon series um, on the plains of Moab. Chapters 1 through 4 is the first sermon or sermon series that serves as a prologue in which Moses kind of recounts the history of Israel. He says, this is where we've been since we crossed the Red Sea. Chapters 4 to 26, the, the second series, restate the terms of God's covenant with his people. And then in chapters 27 through 30, the third sermon or series restates the blessings and or, and or curses that come to those who either keep or break the terms and conditions of that covenant. And then the last three chapters is Moses handing off the baton of leadership to his understudy and protege, a man named Joshua, who we'll hear more about next week. The very last act of Moses is to gather all of Israel together and to say to them, you might be a new generation with a new opportunity to go into a new land and establish yourselves as a new nation, but God has not changed. And so too he says to us, yes, you might be more technologically and scientifically advanced. You might be able to see 
farther into the universe than any generation before. You might be able to look deeper into the human mind and body than any generation before. But God has not changed. Three truths about this unchanging God that we find in the book of Deuteronomy. First, he has revealed himself. He has revealed himself. Now, you wouldn't think that Israel would need to be reminded of who God was. He had freed their parents, and surely some of them had been children at the time, from slavery. He provided food and water for them in the wilderness for 40 years. He had given them a visible symbol of his very presence in the cloud of the column of fire that was around the tabernacle. And yet... Moses spends four chapters recounting how God had worked on behalf of the people. What he had said to the people, what he had done for the people, how he had revealed himself to them. They needed to be reminded. This, as an aside, is the reason why, though some of you have perhaps asked and prayed for God to give you a visible, audible sign, he hasn't done it. Because if you read through the Bible, it never works. People always get a visible sign or an audible sign, and then they want something more. It happens over and over again. That's why Jesus said, the last sign you're ever going to get is my resurrection. If that's not good enough for you, it's all we got. And yet, God had revealed himself to Israel. He had done so in history, Moses says. The end of chapter 4 records the conclusion of Moses' first sermon. It says this in verses 32 to 35. Ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go to take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror. All of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. He has revealed himself in human history not through some mysterious wisdom given in a secret place to one great guru who then comes out and shares it with the world but through real historical acts done in the presence of millions of real people who really existed whose history has been faithfully transmitted to their Children, in this case, orally from Moses on the plains of Moab, but also to us in this written account of these same historical acts. Do you you know that the Bible is the most well-documented, textually verified historical record in all human history? Even if you're someone who is not yet a Christian, there is no argument. The strongest atheist would agree with that. The Bible is by far 
the most well-attested, textually verified historical record of all human history. We have over 11,000 Old Testament manuscripts, including some that are 100% intact that were found in the Qumran tombs. We have discovered more than 5,600 New Testament manuscripts, some of which have been dated to within decades of the original letters. Compare that, if you will, for example, to Homer's Iliad, the second best documented ancient writing by all academic records. We have 643 copies of it, and the earliest manuscript dates no closer than 500 years from the original. New Testament manuscripts are within decades. Or how about Aristotle's writing? Never hear anyone holding conferences to rail against Aristotle, and we can't trust Aristotle. We have 49 copies of Aristotle's writings. The earliest dates to about 1,400 years after his death. God has revealed himself in history, and we have verifiable, trustworthy, written documentation of his acts. But he's also revealed himself in love, Moses says. He reminds Israel of this. Again, we'll be in Deuteronomy 4, verses 36 to 39. He goes on and he says, Out of heaven he, God, let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance, as it is this day. Know therefore today, and lay it on your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. His motivation for these historical acts, Moses says, was love. He looked at your fathers and mothers and he loved them and he chose them. Perhaps the most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but could have eternal life. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in this that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, if you remain skeptical, be encouraged today as Israel was then, that God has revealed himself to you by acting in human history and faithfully preserving a record of those acts. And he has demonstrated his great love for you by sending his only son to die in your place, for your sins as your substitute, and then raising him to life again on the third day to remove all doubt about his identity and the sufficiency of his sacrifice. And the God that did those things then does not change. His character, his love, his righteousness and his justice, his holiness and his plans, his plans to make all things new again when his son returns. 
Those things do not change. Therefore, Moses says at the end of this first sermon, he says it to Israel and to us, obey. He's revealed himself to you in history. He's revealed himself to you in his great love. Therefore, obey him. Verse 40 says, Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you today, that it may go well with you and that your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Every new generation, each and every one of us as individuals, encounters this same God who does not change, who has revealed himself in history, whose great love for us has been demonstrated not only in all of creation, Romans says, but also in the sending of his son. And therefore, we are called to obey him. Second truth about this unchanging God. And Moses wants to make sure Israel doesn't miss and that the Holy Spirit, by having these things preserved, wants to make sure that you and I do not miss is that he chooses his people. He chooses his people. Now that language will rattle some of you, but you cannot read the Bible and get away from this truth. You just can't, Old Testament or New. God chooses his people. This is not a doctrinal sermon on God's sovereignty and election, so I won't go down that rabbit trail. If this is a distraction to you and you want to talk about it, email me. We'll grab that coffee and we'll talk. I would love to do that. No problem at all. But for now, here's what I just, I need you to accept that whether you believe that statement is true or not, Moses did. And in the New Testament, Jesus did. And so he is, Moses, reminding Israel of this truth in this kind of second sermon or series of sermons. He's going to repeat it seven times in these final three addresses to Israel. Again and again and again, seven times. He says to Israel and to those of us who are already Christians today, God chose you to be his people. And he gives them two reasons for that. Just so they're aware of what was God's motivation for choosing his people. First, he says, it's because of his covenant. He chooses his people because of his own covenant. It says in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8, you're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not Because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were actually the fewest of the people. But it is because the Lord loves you, we just talked about that, and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That's his covenant. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You know why God saved you, Moses says? Because he loves you, and he said he would. That's why. Because of his covenant. And I think that there are two errors that we can make sometimes as we think about salvation. For the Christian, you need to make sure, don't make the mistake of thinking that God saved you because you're awesome. Like, you're just so talented, you're so gifted, you're so skilled. And God thought, man, if I can get her, this whole kingdom thing's going to work out. That is not, God saved you in spite of you. God saved you because of 
him because it magnifies the glory of his son's work on the cross and it magnifies the glory and the power of his covenant-keeping faithfulness. You are a testimony to his grace. You're a trophy of his covenant-keeping faithfulness and love. If you're not a Christian, please don't make the mistake of thinking that you need to get your life all cleaned up before you come to God. Or you need to get all of your questions answered before you can be saved. Or that somehow you may have gone too far into sin or you've waited too late in your life. If your salvation depended on you, you would be doomed. But it does not. Praise God, it doesn't hinge on you. It depends on whether or not Jesus was who he said he was and did what he said he did and whether or not God is going to be faithful to keep his covenant. It depends on him. That was as true for Israel 3,500 years ago as it is for me and you today because God does not change. And the reason that he saves people does not change. To make that point explicit, lest some in Israel had dozed off during the sermon, which I praise God nobody does anymore, but Moses wants to make sure that Israel understands God chose his people second because of his grace. Because of his covenant, that has to do with him. Because of his grace, that has to do with you. He says this in Deuteronomy 9. Verses 5 through 7. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. That he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this land to possess because of your righteousness. For you're a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Oh, God choosing you, Moses says? Brother, that's grace. Because you don't deserve it. You stubborn, rebellious, stiff-necked, hard-headed people. The fact that God is saving any of you is pure grace, Moses says. Are we so different that we would think we've earned it? Aren't we glad that we're not Israel? Friends, I hope you see this as good news. Salvation by grace is good. Aren't you glad that God didn't say? In order for you to be saved, what you have to do is you have to make a pilgrimage to the Middle East. Because what if you're broke and can't afford the flight? Well, too bad. I guess you just go to hell. Like, aren't you glad that God didn't say that in order for you to be saved, you have to meditate day and night until you can achieve oneness with the eternal consciousness? Well, what if you have, like, a job or ADHD? Oh, well, sorry. Like, aren't you glad that God didn't say, well, in order for you to be saved, you have to be a good person. Well, good person when? During what time period in history? And in what culture? And under what legal standards? Because those things change all the time. 
So what, what is a good person now in the United States of America in the 21st century may not be the same as what it meant to be a good person in the 4th century in China. So what's the standard? No, friends, salvation by grace is good news because it's the only hope we have. It's the only hope we have. I promise you, if my salvation is up to me, I am toast. I'm done. And if you're someone who thinks, like just receive this in love, like if your thought process is, I'll be okay. I'm pretty good. I think I've done enough good things to earn the eternal blessing and love and favor of the God of the universe. Friend, your arrogance alone disqualifies you. Grace is the only hope we have. Because if God chooses his people according to the covenant that he made with himself, and if the means by which God exercises that sovereign choice is to extend grace to people who would otherwise be undeserving, that gives us hope. Because then our only duty is to respond to what's been freely given. You tracking? That's exactly what Moses tells Israel. You need to respond to what you've received. He says, God chose you because of his covenant, because of his grace, therefore love him. Therefore love him. Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 13. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am now commanding you today for your good. This is reaffirmed. They asked Jesus in the New Testament. Um, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In this is all the law. Love God not to earn his love, but because you have received it. And this is a sermon for a different time. I, we don't have time to unpack this, but can I just throw out for your consideration. If you are commanded to love, That must mean at least two things. It must mean that the reason for love you have already received. And the means for you to love has already been given to you by God. It has, it, if you're commanded to love, it has to mean at least those two things. The reason for you to love you already have. And your ability to love is given to you by the one who's commanding you to do it. Otherwise, it's just cruel to command an emotion. That's a sermon for a different time. Chapters 27 to 30, the final words of Moses, the greatest servant of God in the Old Testament, and the thrust that he gives of this final sermon to Israel is this third unchanging truth about God, that his people must choose him. Well, now you're playing word games. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Deuteronomy is written in its overarching structure as a treaty document. 
in the ancient Near East, it takes the form of a covenant treaty. It has a prologue. That was those first chapters we talked about. Here was your history. It has these covenant terms. That's the second part. And then it has blessings and curses for breaking them. Now, the weight of the covenant, the burden of the covenant, the, the terms and conditions of the covenant are given by and lie on God and God alone. It's a one-way thing. This is not a negotiating session. Right? Moses wasn't the union representative for Israel trying to get the best deal, and then he came out with this covenant. God just said, here it is. Take it or leave it. Wasn't a negotiation with Adam or Noah or Abraham. It wasn't with Israel, and it's not with us. But if people didn't want to be a part of it, if they didn't want to inherit the promises of God, if they didn't want to walk with God in this life, if they didn't want to be with him for all of eternity, then they have made their choice. They have chosen to reject him. There is no such thing as someone who is spiritually neutral about Jesus. You have either opted in or opted out. Everyone who has ever lived has made a choice about God. On this side of the cross, more specifically, everyone is making a choice about Jesus. So if you are not yet a Christian and your thought is, I'm still deciding, no, my friend, you have made your choice. The only question is, will you change it and choose him? People must choose him then and now. And Moses gives two encouragements to Israel and to us about this choice that we have to make. They're just very logical, clear, clean choices. As he's pleading with Israel here right at the very end of his life to choose the Lord. He says, <clears throat> first, this choice you have to make is not too hard. This is not, this is not a hard choice. You come up to me after church, you say, hey man, you want some wings and fries? It's not hard for me. Praise God, yes. Moses says to Israel and to us, you have to choose God. This is not a hard choice. Deuteronomy 30, 11, This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Verse 15, he says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. The alternatives to this choice are clear. Love the Lord, walk in obedience, find life and good. Turn your heart away from God, walk in disobedience, find death and evil. That is not a hard choice to make. You say, well, yeah, but I really like this sin. It's so fun. It feels so good. Fine. Just know that you've cho you're choosing death and evil. That's fine. That's your choice. But at least be intellectually honest with yourself. You're choosing that over God. You say, well, I'd like to change, but it, change is hard. Change feels like death. Don't I know it? You're right. But wouldn't I rather feel like death for a little while than experience it forever? Separated from God because I chose evil. I'll tell you what's hard. 
Verses 17 and 18 of Deuteronomy 30 are hard. If your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. That's hard. Death and destruction, that's hard. Life and good and blessing, that's just not a hard choice to make. Second, Moses says, this choice you have to make is not a mystery. It's not too hard, and it's not a mystery. Deuteronomy 30, 12 to 14. He says of this choice that people are called to make. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. The word is very near to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart that you can do it. God had revealed himself to Israel. They didn't have to go off on some vision quest to undiscover or to discover like the mysteries of the entire universe. He said, it's very near to you. You've heard it. You know it. It's not mysterious. And God does not change, which means that this is still true for me and you today. I think sometimes we just way overcomplicate this idea of finding God. I'm going to find God's will. As if somehow, like, you got to be some kind of, like, spiritual Indiana Jones and go on a quest to uncover God and his will. He's not playing hide-and-seek with you. He's revealed himself to you. The word is near to you. At a bare minimum, you are here this morning, and he has revealed himself to you now through his word. So maybe it was mysterious to you in the parking lot before you came in, but it's not now. He has made himself clear. If the most clear declaration of God's existence is the resurrection of his son. And I just got to be honest with you. If I have to make a choice between anybody else and a dude that was raised from the dead, I'm going with the guy who was raised from the dead. And if I have some questions about that, I trust the Lord to fill in the blanks later on down the road. The choice is not too hard. And it's not a mystery. It has been brought near to us, clearly recorded in the pages of history. Therefore, Moses says in closing, choose life. The people of God have to choose him. It's not too hard. It's not a mystery. So Moses says to Israel and to us, choose life. Deuteronomy 30, 19 to 20. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. That you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and the length of your days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Choose life. If you've never done that, I would love to give you an opportunity to do it this morning. Paul, in his letter to the church in Rome, quotes Deuteronomy 30 in Romans chapter 10. It's almost verbatim. <clears throat> When he says, it's not too far off, you don't have to go across the sea, you don't have to go up to heaven. 
He says, the word is near to you. And Paul says, this word that is near to you is actually the gospel that we preach about Jesus Christ. And then he gives an assurance in Romans 10, 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. If you have never done that, you can do that this morning. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you are willing to pray, to pray and confess that he is Lord, you will be saved, Scripture says. So all you have to do no magic words, there's no magic formula. Right where you are, when I pray in just a minute, you could pray right where you are and just say, Father, I, you have felt far off to me before. You have felt mysterious to me before, but I think for the first time this morning, I believe. Would you forgive me, not based on my goodness, but based on your covenant of grace and the resurrection of your son? If you do that, scripture says you'll be saved. If you're already a Christian, maybe you've done that at some point before in your life. Would you receive this morning as a fresh reminder the words of Moses and recommit yourself to, to do what Moses says, to loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. Let's pray. Father, like the sons and daughters of Israel, we all find ourselves with a choice to make. Those of us who have already stepped into your covenant of grace, we want to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We want to respond to the grace that we have received by loving you and obeying you, but we need your help in that. We need your help. Would you help us to cling to you as our life and the length of our days? And if there are those here this morning who have yet to do that, I pray that by your grace you would draw them near. Would you open their eyes to see the beauty of your gospel, change their heart of stone to a heart of flesh, that they might believe it, that they might become a trophy of your grace and a testimony to your covenant-keeping faithfulness. Thank you that you have chosen anyone, much less us. Would you help us to choose you again every morning? May your mercies meet us fresh and new. In Christ's name, amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.